a lot of the best startups are actually happening because you feel a certain pain and you think you know how to solve it. And then this is how startups start. You need to understand who you're selling to, what's the market, what the customer needs are, and you know, not focus on the hard problems. I think we learned the lesson in the midst of raising when you can and not when you need, and raising enough money so you have enough war chests for the tough times. My advice is first, don't think you figured it out until you get your sales force to actually go and try and sell, because founder selling is a very different thing. From GGV, this is Founder Real Talk, where we get real about the challenges that founders and startup executives face and how they've grown from tough experiences. I'm your host, Glenn Solomon, managing partner at GGV Capital. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. Also, check out Founder Real Talk past episodes, including Stuart Butterfield from Slack, Nate Placharzik from Airbnb, Nichols Fane from Zendesk, and Sarah Fryer from when she was CFO at Square. Without further ado, here's today's episode. This episode of Founder Real Talk is part of our Israeli Entrepreneurs Series. I'm excited to welcome my GGV colleague, Oren Younger, who's been spearheading our efforts in Israel to join me today as guest host. Welcome, Oren. Thank you, Glenn. I'm excited for this. Great. So Oren and I are thrilled to welcome Slavik Markovich to Founder Real Talk today. Slavik is a serial entrepreneur with a passion to solve hard technical problems. He's the co-founder and CEO of Demisto, a leading security orchestration, automation, and response platform. People call these SOAR platforms that help security teams accelerate incident response, standardize, and scale processes and learn from each incident while working together. Slavic sold Demisto to Palo Alto Networks in February 2019, less than four years after founding the company, for over $560 million. That's definitely one topic we're going to cover today. Slavic, welcome to Founder Real Talk. Thanks, Glenn, and uh, happy to be here. You know, you probably, since you're talking about Israeli companies, you probably have a lot of folks with weird, weird accents kind of going through that. So uh, hopefully my accent is not going to throw you're, people off too much. We, we've leaned into the weird accents on Founder Real Talk, and yours is just fine. Right here uh, with you. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah me and Oren, I yeah, guess. There you uh, go. Yeah, maybe I'm the weird one. I, I want to start, before we get into Misto, talking a little bit about your background. Um, you were born in Russia, but you moved to Israel when you were six. You grew up in Israel. And then you moved to the Bay Area in 2008, so you've been here a while. You served in the Israeli Defense Forces for six years uh, while in Israel. And curious, like, how those experiences have shaped you as a person and your desire to become an entrepreneur, which you've now done a few times? Yeah, it's a good question. And I actually had the, you know some introspective and thinking about this whole thing. And I think moving to a new country kind of forces you uh, to be like in a growth or flexible mindset. So uh, moving to a country where you don't speak the language, where you kind of don't understand what's going on initially, forces you to, to kind of adjust quickly. So mm-hmm. that's one thing. And definitely, and this you'll hear from any Israeli entrepreneur, uh, being in the uh, Israeli Defense Forces is a big part of uh, shaping who you are. And I guess 
at a very young, very young age, being thrust with all this responsibility, and you suddenly have to manage many people, and you have like a project, and you know, people' lives sometimes depend on you. So it really forces you to step up and 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 think big. But also the Israeli army, you see it with many Israelis. You're kind of trying to find the best shortcuts to to do everything quickly to make it something successful, which is very, I think, uh, very aligned with what startups are. It sounds like an analogous experience to startups. And having all that responsibility on your shoulders at a young age, you probably... You know, running a startup is also puts a lot of responsibility on your shoulders, but you've done it already. You've said in the past that in the Israeli Defense Forces, you learned the importance of getting out of the building and, and being close to your customer. Can you talk a little bit more about that and why why you learned that? Sure, I, that's an interesting lesson I learned because uh, initially as technical folks, you kind of like to sit down at your desk and develop stuff. Yep. And you have this image of how it's going to be used and how it's being used. And I found that this image is not necessarily the real world. And you only gain real experience if you go and talk with your customers. And we see that all the time. So, for example, in the Misto, we we actually have our engineers going out and meeting customers, conducting POCs, doing customer success, because that makes them a much better engineer. So my small anecdote uh, story from the Army was that uh, we had a very distributed system that they had to work, uh, you know, if there's a strike against Israel and all the communication lines are down, it still has to work. And we had a base where the system consistently would crash at 8 a.m. And we couldn't understand why we went over debug logs. We tried to understand what's going on. And we really didn't understand there's no jobs running. There's nothing that's really like 8 a.m. happening. So we said, you know what? Let's go to that base and sit with the customer and see what actually happens there. And we're sitting there in front of the system, and it's getting close to 8 a.m., and nothing is happening, everything looks fine, and we're all kind of, okay, what, what's going on? And we see this older gentleman, like the guys who kind of make, you know, army as their career, goes in, and he's just saying hi to us, kind of walking next to us, then goes to the coffee machine, unplugs the, the computer system, <laughs> plugs in the coffee machine, Make himself coffee, ask us if we want uh, coffee. <laughs> and then the mystery was solved. So we understood why we actually had those crashes at 8 a.m. So I kind of remember that and I have to force myself to remember it all the time until you actually are out there in the field with the customers, you never know what's really going on. And so that's uh, my small anecdote so about So you that. bought him an extra plug. So yeah, we, we, we bought him an extra plug where <laughs> we actually talked about the importance of, you know, this is a production environment. <laughs> you don't plug anything in that area. This is your computer, uh, you know, server room. That's so. the military in its best. Yeah. Yes, military it is best because, great, you know. Great anecdote and, and good reminder of the importance of getting out there yeah. and seeing what's really going on in the field. So you founded your first startup, Centrigo, in 2006, which was a database security company. Mm-hmm. Well, this might seem bizarre to some of our listeners, but back then there weren't too many security companies coming out of Israel. What made you decide to start Centrigo at that time? So again, this is actually, and I think a lot of the best startups are actually happening because you feel a certain pain and you think you know how to solve it. 
And then this is how startups start. So I designed a billing solution for a, I was in a consulting company. And we worked with Sony PlayStation here in the Bay Area, in Foster City. And I designed a billing solution for PlayStation 2. And at the time, I was, you know, working on the database backend. And I noticed that I could connect to the backend database and see millions of credit cards, see my friend's data. And nobody would tell me anything, <laughs> right? I would do that and could do anything I want in the database. And since it wasn't over the network, it actually, you know, nobody was monitoring that. So I said, that can't be right. I mean, me from Israel, they don't even know exactly who I am. I can connect uh, to those production servers and do whatever I want. So this was a pain that I thought I know how to solve. And uh, I actually, you know, started the Centrigo because of that. It's interesting. And you said that you learned at Centrigo to focus on customer needs yeah. versus building cool and very difficult to solve technology. Could you elaborate on that? Of course, of course. And this is a big learning for me, and I find that I need to relearn it over and over again, is that we as engineers, we try to, we tend to focus on the hard engineering problems. And that's what we want to solve, and that's what is interesting for us. And Centrigo was a really hard engineering problem. How do you monitor databases in real time without affecting performance? So we solved it in a very hard technical way of doing a reverse engineering of the database's memory and understanding exactly the memory structures and then monitoring via the operating system, which was really cool. I think technology-wise, it was an amazing company. But when we came to sell it, uh, we found that the selling motion is so hard mm. because you have to put the database administrators and the security guys in the same room and let them agree with each other. And that's if you've ever talked with those two not functions, it's not easy. And it kind of taught me a, a good lesson about you, you need to understand who you're selling to, what's the market, what the customer needs are, and uh, you know not focus on the hard problems. And it's funny because... I actually had to relearn it again when we started the Misto. Because before starting the Misto, we were at McAfee, and we were actually thinking, wait, what are we going to do now? And immediately, we went to the hard problem to solve, hard engineering problem to solve. So we actually wanted to do something which is a cross between kind of carbon black and tanium, and you know a way to have a very distributed peer-to-peer -peer database that allows you to query in real time what's the endpoint status and things like that. So it was really cool idea, and I went to academic, cool. yeah, academic research papers, and I researched all the protocols and started implementing that. And it's funny, we are at RSA period just a week before RSA. And during RSA 2015, it was a good opportunity to test that with customers. And we were really happy with like our ideas and, and, and direction and went to talk with the customers. We met about 30 to 40 CISOs mm. and the response was unanimous. You know, here's the door. Thank you. We're not interested. <laughs> and and we we were like, why? But it's a good solution. And people told us, and rightfully so. Look, we have so many endpoints, and this is not my problem. My problem is something completely different. So we asked them, so what is your problem? What is kind of keeping you awake at night? And they all talked about you know the too many security tools, too many alerts, and not enough security people. So we said, okay, okay then. So that's what we're gonna do. <laughs> 
That's awesome. Uh, Going back to Centrigo, just for one more moment, you had to confront with the global financial crisis in 08, Mm -hmm. which is the time that you came to the U.S. Any correlations there? I'm not sure. (laughs) I I like to think I brought the the (laughs) crisis with me, but yeah. Or solved it. Uh, Any lessons from that experience of, you know, going through that time? Yeah, it was actually a really tough time. So I moved uh, to the U.S. in July of 08, exactly when the crisis started. And I moved with the family. And suddenly, you know, there was no money to be had from VCs. All the POs were canceled. So customers were also very cautious in what they're spending. And we found ourselves in this place where we just moved and hey, we might close a startup, or we might go and need to go back, and it's not uh, not a fun place to be. And we sold our house in Israel, so Oof. it was uh, there was no it going was back. Tough. Yeah. And uh, I found myself back in Israel in September, firing half the company because we knew that we we cannot survive unless we do drastic measures, and that kind of stuck with me. And I think we learned the lesson in the midst of raising when you can and not when you need, and raising enough money so you have enough war chests for the tough times. And this actually you know, stuck and resonated with all of the founders because my two other co-founders came from Centrigo as well, and they felt the pain as well. And so I think it's a good advice uh, for any founder out there is, Raise and don't be too worried about you know percentage or ownership of the company. If there's a success, everybody will be successful. And so raise enough to be successful even in tough times. Super sage advice and something we you know we tell all our entrepreneurs at at GGV. Good news is there's lots of capital out there today. That's true. Um, <laughs> and so it's it's a little bit easier than it was back in '08 to raise money, but you know things will change. I want to go to like the Demisto founding Mm -hmm. part of your life. You were probably enjoying life at McAfee. You were there for four years. You you met Rishi, who you ended up starting Demisto with. What was the impetus you had to decide, hey, I got to go start something new? Turned out to be ultimately Demisto, which was different than your first idea, which you just talked about. But like, you know, you had a cushy job. I'm sure life was okay. Why why leave? And how did you decide that Rishi would be the right guy to do it with? So it's it's funny because uh, you know we had those conversations. I had those conversations with my wife, uh, and uh, <laughs> you know she she was like, "Are you crazy? Yeah. You're, you're making like good money. You're home every every day at like four. So life is good. What's what's uh, what's the idea?" I think you said you started it out of boredom and coffee. Yeah. At so some that's point, exactly right? that boredom <laughs> and coffee. So I think the first year and a half uh, or two years at McAfee, I was really driven and optimistic. Right, I tried to push lots of projects, do a lot of stuff. But uh, if you remember, that was the transition period of McAfee being part of Intel, and things were very hard to actually move forward there. And after a while, I just felt like giving up. And you know, mm. it's not fun when you wake up every morning and think, "Do I even want to go to the office? Should I even, you know, should I bother?" And Nobody will miss me if I don't go for like a week and nothing will happen. So that's not a fun, uh, you know, feeling. And I just told my wife that I, I cannot live like that. I have to do something meaningful and interesting. And Rishi was uh, sitting next, so he had an office next to my office. 
And every morning, I kind of got him hooked on coffee. I had this small Nespresso machine in my office, which is like a private Nespresso machine because we had crappy coffee at McAfee. <laughs> and every morning, he would uh, come in, and we would drink coffee together and kind of discuss why are we spending more time here at McAfee? Let's do something interesting. So boredom was definitely a big chunk of it. And I would love to sit here and say, no, we had these amazing ideas, but we didn't. We were just bored and we wanted to do something that is meaningful. So this is how we kind of started talking. And I knew Rishi uh, from even before McAfee acquired Centrigo. So I knew Rishi because we had an OEM relations with McAfee and he kind of led the product management of the business unit that we were involved with. And I found him to be this amazing, like super optimistic, full of energy guy. And it's funny because when we started, we actually, all of us were very technical, very engineering background uh, founders. And we said, okay, who's going to do what? And the guy and Dan were in Israel. And we said, okay, engineering is there, so fine. So guys is going to manage engineering, then he's going to manage a product. You know, that makes sense. So what is Rishi going to do? And he said, okay, I'm going to do marketing. And he, he was never doing marketing before. And apparently because of his technical background and how structured his uh, thinking was, he did such an amazing job. And uh, we, we can discuss how the Misto actually had this amazing inbound Funnel that we never actually did any outreach outside. So he, he did such an amazing job in the marketing that people thought it's like his fourth or fifth time doing marketing mm. uh, role. Okay, we want to we want to chat with you a little bit about this uh, this inbound model you built. But first, you talked about you know you guys over coffee. You knew you were bored. You had <laughs> yeah. to go do something with your lives that was going to be meaningful. So you leave, you have this idea that you mentioned, kind of a cross between carbon black and tanium. Right. You went out and talked to lots and lots of CISOs at RSA, didn't get great feedback. Yeah. So realize the importance of being near the customer, not just thinking about what problem is going to be hard to solve. And then you said that one thing you were hearing from CISOs is, hey, too many tools, too many alerts, not enough people to deal with right. this noise was kind of a common refrain you were hearing from CISOs. So tell us how that led to the idea for Demisto, and maybe unpack a little bit what Demisto was for and sure. what it is today. Sure. So when we heard that problem from the CISOs, we actually said, okay, first we need to learn. So we actually came to our connections and to CISOs and told them, hey, you know what? We're not here to sell you anything. Just let us sit in your sock, you know, behind the analysts and observe. And we actually did it for a while and tried to capture the workflow and the process of the security analysts in the security operations center. And we were sitting there and we noticed, oh my God, that's such a broken process. I mean, I wouldn't survive probably two months as a security analyst. And you can see that because the analyst average, you know, time at a company is probably like something like 18 months. Mm -hmm. And there's a big reason for that because the process for them is completely broken, right? They're getting bombarded with alerts. They don't have any time to focus on any alert. They use 30 to 40 tools kind of interchangeably. So if you sit behind an analyst, you see his Chrome browser has like 40 tabs open. And he's kind of moving between the tabs, copying, pasting. It's crazy. Yeah. And that kind of told us, okay, it doesn't make sense. We have to have a platform or a single 
kind of pane of glass where the analyst can achieve everything he needs to achieve and the knowledge can be retained. So that was kind of the misto in the inception. And we noticed there are like three or four pieces to that puzzle. One is kind of managing the full incident lifecycle. So you need to capture the data and capture also the SLAs for each incident time. So, you know, first detection, then first eyes on the incident, then, you know, containment, then remediation. If you can capture and measure all of this, then you can improve because if you measure and you see, you know where to invest. So that's one big part of it is the whole kind of incident management or case management or or ticketing. Then, obviously, we notice there are like thousands of alerts, not enough analysts. So the only way to kind of break that asymmetry is is saying, okay, let's introduce automation to the puzzle. And so we kind of had this idea of if we can codify the process for each incident type and say, these are the steps that the analyst needs to go through, it achieves multiple you know, advantages. One is there is a standard process now all the analysts need to follow. But it's codified not in a you know, paper or, or some uh, Word document. It's codified by the computer so you can actually measure it and make sure that he's actually going through every step. So that's one. So you achieve consistency and quality. But then you can take many of those steps because they're repetitive and they don't need actual attention and replace them with automation. Mm. And what you get to is that, you know, 80%, 90% of the, what the analyst actually does, you can completely automate away. Let them focus on the 10% which are important for security and not kind of waste their time in doing like uh, manual stuff. So that was a big Part of it, the second piece is the automation. And I think the third piece is that we noticed that most of the interesting security incidents were never solved by an analyst by himself. There was always a group involved. And so there were communications going on. And if you're sitting in the same room, then it's all good, right? You turn around and shout, hey, have you ever seen this IP? And uh, the other guy answers. But even those conversations are kind of happening outside of the you know, the tools, and so the knowledge is not being kept, and, and you don't have the full timeline of what was the thinking mm. process in the incident. And so we created this virtual war room for each incident, which allows you to chat with other analysts, but also chat with our bot. So you can say, hey, D-Bot, Retrieve this file from that endpoint, detonate it in this sandbox, and give me the response. And this basically allows you to have a single place to access all of your security tools. So the training of the analyst becomes much simpler. The full timeline is being captured. The knowledge is kept. And you can also cross-correlate across incidents. So this single place is really amazing. And we got to that by shamelessly stealing from Slack because we, we were kind of ideating around this whole idea and where do you usually ideate? You kind of think, and we, we slacked a lot. So yes. Rishi and I kind of exchanged a lot of slacks. And then it hit us, actually on the way to one of the VC meetings, we were driving together. And then it hit us that, oh my God, this is how I want investigations to happen. Like this chat ops and this chatting is really, really powerful way to capture the knowledge and 
uh, activate all the security tools. So we said, okay, if Slack did it, let's do it uh, the same. So we kind of you know, captured the idea. And even that same meeting that we met, it was, uh, I, I actually won't name the VC, but even for that meeting, we immediately added the slide before the meeting for, uh, <laughs> hey, we're going to have these chat ops and warm capabilities. So it was pretty cool. Uh, you know, we were an investor in Slack and pretty familiar with the Slack fund and, and the investments they've made there. And I always thought it was weird. Why is Demisto a Slack fund yeah. investment, a security company? Now I know why. <laughs> oh yeah, there's there's a, a huge connection there because uh, we're a we were inspired by them a lot, and B I think it kind of brings the whole communication concept and, and like the enterprise communication uh, to to security. So yeah, awesome. Demisto is global with development running in Israel, as you mentioned. While the selling is done here in the U.S. What are some of the challenges of running a business split between 10-hour time difference? And how did these challenges change as you scale the company? Great question. So we actually, in the midst of, we had uh, global sales across the world. So we had offices in APEC in Australia. We had offices in UK and, and, and so on. So I actually found it to be really really working well with my uh, life work-life balance because I would, even in the Misto, I would uh, actually make it a point to go home at like 4 p.m. So I'll go home, stay with the family, and then you go for their second work day starting at like 9, 30, 10. And it worked really well with the time difference because they're just starting, you're kind of already at the tail end of your day, and uh, it worked amazingly well. So I think there are challenges but in today's world with the communication tools and the Slack and, you know, the, the various uh, GitHub and so on, it actually can work. You just need to be flexible enough with your time and, you know, how, how you arrange all things that, you know, it, it doesn't pose a, a huge problem. So true, I have like standing meetings at 11 p.m., so that that happens. I have a man every Monday, for example, I have a product strategy at eleven p.m. Good thing you have a good uh, coffee. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, on the other hand, I do have this window to spend with my family, which is uh, pretty awesome. So the company grew amazingly fast. Official numbers are six hundred forty thousand in ARR dollars in twenty sixteen, when it was just a founder selling for just the last part of the year. Then he grew to $4.4 million of ARR in 2017 and almost 5x that again in 2018. This is an incredible growth. To what do you attribute your fast growth? So I would love again to say, oh, we were such amazing guys and we <laughs> cracked the market and everything. I think it was a lot to do with timing. So we, we had like this amazing timing where the problem became acute really bad. The products out there all had open APIs, so kind of you could write a good solution for that. And there was a lot of understanding in the market that you, you need to have that. But beyond that, I think our execution was really nice in the sense that our funnel actually worked. We created this environment where analysts can uh, chat with each other, actually on Slack. And we had cool giveaways in the sense of, uh, you know, this free D-Bot that you can use in Slack, a lot of content around what is the right playbook to use with this type of incident and so on. And so we kind of captured a lot of attention from uh, potential customers. 
And we found that, again, we actually did not need to do any outreach programs. We, we had customers coming to us and, you know, asking to download the product and asking to engage with us. It was an amazing experience. You know, I compare it to the Centrigo days where we actually had to chase customers, and it's a completely different uh, experience. But it's a lot about being true to your customer, listening to what they really need and executing on that, and then customers will come. So you changed in 2016 when you thought you figured it. Oh, yeah. Um, so how difficult was the transition from founder selling that figured it to hiring sales leaders and salespeople to sell? And lots of our companies struggle with that transition. So any advice that you can give to uh, companies that are going through it? Yeah, so my advice is uh, first, don't think you figured it out until you <laughs> get your sales force to actually go and try and sell. Because founder selling is a very different thing. You, you have the passion. You understand the product you know, inside out. You understand the customer need. You're the founder, right? And we found that the customer, CISOs, actually like to meet with founders, right? It's it's enriching to them as well. It's a good conversation. It's not like them meeting sales guys. And so we in 20, Q4 2016, we actually started selling Rishi and I. We met a lot of customers, and we, we did pretty well, right? One quarter, 640K, it's, it's not bad for, for first quarter of selling. Pretty darn good. And immediately at this point, we said, oh my God, that's it. We figured it out. It's all easy from here. And we obviously raised our next round uh, on that. And we raised $20 million and started scaling the team. Can you guess how many deals we did in Q1 2017 immediately after? We did exactly one deal. <laughs> so we said, oh, Oops. we cracked it. So our sales guys will crack it as well. No problem. And we let them go and, and run with the sales. And obviously, it wasn't that good. And uh, I have to give a shout out to our VCs here that uh, actually had the patience and did not panic and told us, it's okay. I remember that board meeting where we said, you know, our sales guy, our sales completely crashed. We didn't do anything. And the board says, it's okay. The product is there. Take your time. We're not panicky. So that, that was a very uh, good and inspiring conversation with, with them. But this transition from founder selling to sales selling is, is actually really tough. And you need to find the right sales guys because this is, really about finding the hunters and killers out there, not the farmers that you get in most enterprises. And they have to be passionate about the product. They have to be evangelists. They have to understand that. And our first sales guy, actually, that was very successful was an SE before. So he was really technical, very passionate about the product. And this helped him actually go and, and, and do the sales. And eventually, you know, as, as time goes and the product becomes better and better, then obviously sales become easier and easier. But this first transition is, is always tough. Well, you guys got through it. And like Oren mentioned, you grew incredibly fast in 2017 and 2018. VC dollars were flowing. You closed a sizable Series C in late 2018 with our good friends uh, Ashim and Sarah at Greylock. Yep. And then Palo Alto comes knocking on the door. You've said that initially you weren't excited about selling to those guys. Yeah. Uh, you just raised the round, and I'm sure you you know you raised that round thinking we're going to go big here. But you know, in February 2019, Palo Alto announces they've acquired Domisto, yeah. uh, and obviously it was a great deal, 560 million plus for you guys and for your VCs. 
So what what changed? Why did you initially not want to sell? And then what tipped the scales for you to ultimately decide, hey, this is something that would be right for us to do? Right. And they, I remember the first meeting, so Nikesh kind of approached us and said, hey, let's meet and, and kind of you educate me about your kind of marketing strategy and whatnot. And I was not even a... I didn't prepare for that meeting. I was like, okay, sure, I'll come and meet. And uh, we're sitting there in the room, and you have Nikesh, the CEO of Palo Alto Networks. You have Nir, you have Lee, like the product leaders and the founder. And I kind of presented our standard, like, almost customer pitch. And it kind of resonated well with them. And I remember Nikesh going to the whiteboard and starting uh, to outline the strategy of uh, Palo Alto Networks. And the strategy was very aligned to what we were trying to achieve about, you know, automating the SOC, making, you know, completely revolutionizing how incidents are being handled or how, how security is being done. And I remember thinking, wow, those guys really get it, which is, you know, Surprising, especially since, uh, you know, Nikesh was new to the security world at the time. Then we kind of started this conversation. Hey, would you like to do something strategic? And I was sitting at that meeting and thinking, I just raised like $43 million. We're running really, really fast. We're growing amazingly well. We were planning to do 50 million ARR in 2019. And I said, you know what? No, thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm good where we are. Let's talk in about, uh, you know, eight to 12 months. And, you know, then it might be more interesting. And I just left. So I, I left and that, that was how the meeting ended. And then Nikesh uh, pinged me. Uh, he's a big WhatsApp user. So he WhatsApped me and said, hey, let's meet again. Let's talk and uh, let's meet for breakfast and, and, and so on. And... I started thinking the strategy is really aligned, right? We want the same things. Can I achieve the same things faster and better if I'm part of Palo Alto Networks? And I and won't sit here and say this was the only consideration, right? Because as founders, you know, it's a balance between things that you really want to achieve with customers, but also you need to make sure that you know your employees are happy you need to make sure that eventually the outcome is good to whoever gave you know his trust to you and so we looked at 2019 and i'm kind of embarrassed to say that i thought that 2019 is going to be terrible financially mm. so at the time if you remember there was this whole battle with china and oh, yeah. trump and i don't know i i thought the bubble is going to burst and i was sitting there thinking okay we're having great traction, but what happens if the entire market crashes? Then it's not up to you. It's like up to the market. And can we really meet our 50 million target? And the strategy is actually very much aligned. So that kind of got me over the edge of, okay, the market is going to crash. Uh, we can execute much faster with Palo Alto Networks. And, uh, you know, obviously I was mistaken. 2019 was great financially. <laughs> and we, as the Misto inside Palo Alto Networks, we did 5x of what we, we were planning. It, it's uh, pretty wow. crazy. The growth is uh, unbelievable. So that actually, on the one hand, kind of, you know, I met my targets in a sense that, uh, you know, we're achieving much more traction with customers. The doors are opening. We're gaining a lot of market share. On the other hand, I'm kind of looking back and saying, 
oh my god, I sold cheap. <laughs> I could sell much, uh, you know, for much bigger than Nikesh that. got himself a good deal. Yeah, no, for, for the valuation uh, or for the pace that we are running and the multipliers that uh, Palo Alto has, uh, I think they made their uh, their money back and even more. Yeah, got it. Okay. And that's one one year. <laughs> All right, Slavic. So um, you're almost done, but now we're putting you on the hot seat. Okay, right. <laughs> uh, we're going to do a speed round. We're going to ask a couple of questions. Just say the first thing that comes to your mind. What's the best piece of startup advice you've ever received? Go out of the building and meet the customers. That's for sure the biggest one for us. That was the most impactful. I'm going to remember the coffee machine yes. uh, example <laughs> from the IDF days. Uh, favorite book you recommend to founders? Oh, so I don't read many articles. professional books. I think the whole lean startup and uh, you know this whole customer development canvas and whatnot was really interesting for me to read. I actually met those guys uh, at Stanford, so that was really cool. But uh, I read sci-fi and fantasy. That's what I do in my spare time. So I, the Misto actually came from. The name came from Mistborn, uh, which is a trilogy that's really cool. And I was playing with this concept of uh, clearing the mist or the fog of war during ah. the incident. So the misting. So uh, Mistborn g- gave me the, the name. <laughs> Great. Uh, thing you missed the most about Israel? Friends and family, 100%. Although I go to Israel pretty much every quarter, at least once. So I get to meet <laughs> them a lot. But it's definitely the, the friends and family. So Oren and I are going to Israel a lot these days, and so uh, he's taking me to many, many great falafel and shawarma places mm-hmm. in Israel. But last one for you, what's the best uh, shawarma or falafel or both that you have in these Yeah, so I'm, I'm vegetarian, so okay. I don't eat uh, shawarma. Okay, so falafel uh, in Silicon so Valley. Fal- falafel, definitely, for hummus, it's orange hummus, but falafel, I would go to falafel stop. It's, it's pretty good. They have good pitas and very good falafels. So. All right, falafel stop and orange. Okay. Yes. Good, good plugs for those two establishments. Slavic, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing with us your personal journey and the story of Domisto specifically. Uh, what an incredible ride it's been for you. And uh, I know founders who listen to this are going to really get a lot out of it. So thanks so much. All right, thank you for uh, having me. You've been listening to Founder Real Talk. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. If you have any questions you'd like us to ask our guests or founders you'd like to hear on this podcast, feel free to email us at founderrealtalk at ggvc.com. We're produced by Ted Carstensen and his team at HeavyBit. We want to thank Ted for his support. Our theme song is by Grapes. GGV Capital is a global venture capital firm that invests in local founders. As a multi-stage, sector-focused firm, GGV focuses on seed to growth across consumer, social and internet, enterprise cloud, and frontier tech. The firm was founded in 2000 and manages $6.2 billion in capital across 13 funds. Past and present portfolio companies include the likes of Affirm, Airbnb, Alibaba, Didi, Grab, Hellobike, HashiCorp, House, Keep, Namely, New, Opendoor, Peloton, Poshmark, Slack, Square, Wish, and many more. The firm has offices in Beijing, San Francisco, Shanghai, and Silicon Valley. Learn more at ggvc.com or follow us on Twitter at, at GGV Capital or GGV Capital on WeChat.